in the announcements and in the other aspects of the service to this point this morning, we each have so much for which we could be thankful. And the Thanksgiving holiday that was celebrated this past Thursday only reminds us that in Christ we have even far greater blessings in the material, even far richer and more abundant blessings in the physical, and even today how marvelous it is that we can assemble in the greatness and in the presence of the God of heaven to offer worship and honor and glory into His wonderful and fantastic name. As you might have noted last Lord's Day morning, we considered a, the first part of a two-part series of lessons, and that particular lesson was entitled, The Wrong Personal Approach to Sin. And as we studied that lesson, we did, of course, take note that it, there would be a sequel to it, the one that we would consider, in fact, this morning. But here are at least some basic thoughts about that lesson that we noted on that occasion. We learned that sin is real. It is something that despite the fact that many in the human family think it's just a figment of the overactive imagination of a fundamentalist biblical person, sin is something that does exist. It is real. It inflicts all of us. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. We learn then that there are several approaches that one might take to sin in his or her life. First, some people choose to ignore it thinking that it isn't important or that things will work out okay in the end somehow. We noted from Proverbs 14.9 how foolish that was. Fools make a mock at sin. Jesus didn't come to die on a cross that we might ignore sin. He came that we might handle it and deal with it scripturally and biblically. We also noted that there are others who try to hide it. They are aware that sin is shameful and they're aware that sin is an ugly, disgraceful thing, so they try to conceal it and cover it up. We noted, too, that that also was unwise, for we remember that God sees everything, Hebrews 4.13. Finally, we noted that it's also a bad idea to deal with it unscripturally, try to lay the blame on somebody else, excuse ourselves, all three of those are just a terrible way to approach sin because they don't do anything about remitting it. They knew nothing about forgiving it. Today, in light of all those bad approaches to sin, might we ask, what then is the right approach to sin? What is it that you and I should do in the concourse of those events? It is a thankful matter that in the matter of the Old Testament, we have a man named David. And though much could be said about David, one of the things that does appear before us is the statement about how he dealt with a particular set of sins in his life. It is for that reason I would invite us to begin the lesson today by rehearsing those events. And then after rehearsing them, let's see how David dealt with them. To do that, here are some thoughts that take us back to 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Now, we will not read the thoroughness of those chapters, but many of the events, I'm sure, are rather familiar to us. I'm going to paraphrase them by way of rehearsal. I suppose that many of us, as we think about the sins in David's life, though we may not have been guilty of exactly the same one, sometimes our approach can very much parallel his. The scene begins in verse 1 as follows. It was that time of year when kings ought to have been in battle with their troops and with their particular soldiers. In fact, the text says the year had passed, had expired, and it was time for kings to be at war. However, 
David sent Joab, his secretary of war, if you please. And not only that, he sent him along with the troops to take care of defeating and fighting the Ammonites while David himself remained back at the palace. In an even tide, verse number 2, David walked upon in the evening the palace roof. He espied from a distance a beautiful woman bathing herself. This woman's name was Bathsheba. And at that point, David inquired as to who she was. Not only did he inquire as to who she was, he sent his messengers, his servants, to bring her to him. And she came. That very night, we noticed that David lay with her. At this point, we all recognize that David had been a married man. He was a married man. He had committed adultery. And yet, as he lay with Bathsheba, she too was guilty, of course. But verse number 5 brings some news that David no doubt hoped would never arrive at his ears. She sent him word, I have a child. She had become pregnant by David. Now here was the king, the highest official in the land who had impregnated, who had in fact had an affair with this woman to whom he was not married, of course. Beginning in verse 6, David takes this first approach. We learned last Sunday what a bad idea it was to try and cover up the sin, but that was David's first approach. This is what he did. He sent word to Joab to send Uriah back from the battlefront. Uriah, as a dutiful soldier and servant of the mastering king, he came back, and David had a very interesting conversation with him. David talked of the war. How's Joab doing? How are the troops doing? How's the war proceeding? Joab, or rather Uriah, answered appropriately. But David had another word of advice for Uriah. You've been fighting hard. Take a rest. Go home. Wash your feet. Rest with your wife. And here's some food from the king's palace that you can take with you. And so it was that Uriah had all the things necessary, hopefully, that he would lay with his wife, and that child she was bearing might be thought to be Uriah's and not David's. However, Uriah did not go home that night. In fact, he laid right at the king's door with the servants. The next day, word was brought to David that Uriah did not go home the previous night. David now had to resort to plan B. His next idea was this. He again had a discussion with, a talk with Uriah. He said, Uriah, why didn't you go home last night? Why didn't you go to your wife? You're home from war, all the terrible difficulties that go with it. Why didn't you enjoy a peaceful, comforting night at your own place? Uriah in nobility in verses 8 through 10 simply responds by saying, Joab and my fellow soldiers are at war. They're in all the discomforts of the battlefield. How could I? Go home, rest with my wife and all the luxuries of home, knowing that my fellow soldiers are in fact in all the discomforts of the battlefield. With that particular advice, David had another reply for Uriah. He said, you remain one more day at Jerusalem. And that extra day that he remained, David made available to him all the things, such as food and most especially wine alcoholic beverage. Uriah did become drunken and David's hope was of course that he would go that night again lay with his wife and maybe that child born 
to them would be thought to be his. However, David learned some more bad news, at least from his perspective. Uriah didn't go home that night either. Though in a drunken stupor he was, he nonetheless remained apart from his house because, again, he did not think it appropriate, did not think it right to go home and be in a place like that while his fellow soldiers were at war. It is to be noted in terms of all of that that Uriah spoke of integrity, he spoke of honesty and uprightness, and David all the while was playing the deceitful one, wasn't he? As the scene unfolds, it brings us then to these. At this point, David had to resort to plan C. The first two attempts had failed. Uriah did not go home either time. So this next time, the morning came and David wrote a letter to Joab. And in that letter, he gave these orders. You put Uriah into the hottest part of the battle, and then you retreat from him. Joab did, just as the commander had said. He put Uriah into the hottest part of the battle with the Ammonites, and then he himself and the troops retreated, and sure enough, not only was Uriah killed, but many of the fighting men of Israel. This plan of David had resulted in the death of many of the fighting soldiers of the Israelites. However, Uriah was slain. News of this became to David, and David wasn't at all distraught by it. It didn't bother him that lives had been lost. It didn't concern him, it would seem. He simply had the messengers to tell Joab, things like that are going to happen in war. With that, the curtain almost closes on this chapter. But there is one final statement in the closing verse. It might seem that David had succeeded. For at this point, with Uriah dead, Bathsheba mourned for the appropriate period of time, and then she and David were married. Did David cover his sin? Had he succeeded in clouding it before the eyes of the human family so that no one knew it? Uriah was now dead, Bathsheba was now his wife, and that child born to them now, folks might think legitimately, was theirs. However, the closing sentence of the chapter says, The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God knew all about it, and it had displeased him. And so as chapter 12 opens, we find Nathan the prophet being sent to David. And he comes and tells David what seems to be a rather interesting story. He tells about two gentlemen. One of them was a rich man. The other was a very poor man. The rich man had herds and flocks in abundance. The poor man had only one little ewe lamb. That little ewe lamb was so special and dear to him and his family. It had grown up with his children. But then a stranger, a wayfaring person comes to the town and he's a guest of the rich man. Rather than kill one of the members of his flock, he goes and kills the one little ewe lamb of the poor man, dresses it and fixes it for the stranger. And when David hears of it, he's beside himself with rage and anger. He even said in verses 4 and 5, This man is worthy of death. Nathan then in a bold and courageous way says, David, thou art the man. The whole story was meant to tell David, you're the one. You are like the rich man. You had everything at your disposal. Flocks and herds in character. 
Uriah had only one thing, a beautiful wife. They were wed to one another, and you took, and you killed him, and you committed adultery with his wife. David, you're the man. As Nathan told that story to David, David recognized immediately the point of the lesson. We might have thought that in rage David would have Nathan killed, but he didn't. We might have thought that David in rage would perhaps have usurped great character and had Nathan imprisoned, but he didn't. In verse 13, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. The story had come to the point that David now knew that he himself was the one guilty. How did David react and respond to that sin? It is a thankful matter that we have the 51st Psalm as a reminder, as an exact record of how David responded to that sin. You'll notice on this particular slide, the response that we now see in David point us to ask this. David first had tried to cover his sin. He first had tried to conceal it, and now he had gone so far as to commit murder, adultery. He had committed deceit, drunkenness, encouraging others to drink, which itself is a sin. And all the while, he had been guilty of all of these. And now, Nathan had told him, you're the man. I would invite you to read with me the 51st Psalm. And then following that, we will extract a few very brief lessons. And then today, that will close our discussion. Listen to how David reacted once Nathan told him this story and once he recognized he was with sin. Please read with me the 51st Psalm. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities." Create in me a new heart, a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness." O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem, then shall thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. With burnt offering and a whole burnt offering, then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. David was a man with a broken heart. 
a heart broken because of what he had done. Isn't it sometimes an amazing thing how that a conscience, when you and I come to recognize the deeds, the sins, that we just feel hollow inside? There's a sense of shallowness, a sense of incorrectness, a sense that things just aren't right. We can see from the wording that David felt that way. But he, more than anything else, at that moment wanted again to have a clean spirit, a right heart, to be drawn back into God and to know the former sense of ease and pleasures and the former sense of rightness that he had enjoyed. After all, wasn't it true that several chapters earlier than this in 1 Samuel 13, it had there been said David was a man after God's own heart. There was a time he enjoyed a close association with God, a close fellowship with Him, and now that was lost. I would invite each of us over the next moment or two just to learn some lessons from Psalm 51 so you and I can deal with sin the right way too. Let's begin in the following way. First of all, we might well begin in verse number 4. Against thee... The only have I sinned. We understand, and so too did David, that our sins can certainly impact others. After all, in this instance, it had led to Uriah's death. He had been murdered because of what David had done and David's foolish choices. But yet, first and foremost, our sin is against God. It is His will that has been broken. It is His law that has been transgressed. 1 John 3, 4. And David came to realize that all the concealing he had tried to do, all the hiding he had attempted, all of it had failed because God was aware of it. And he'd sent Nathan to tell him, David, I know exactly what you've done. I know exactly how you've done it. And I know exactly all the consequences that are going to come from it. You and I first then need to appreciate the fact that sin is against God. It's principally a violation, of course, of His will. Doesn't that remind us of Joseph in Genesis 39? When there was the wife of Potiphar who wanted Joseph to lie with her, and yet Joseph ran away leaving his coat behind, and it was to her, he said, How can I do this thing and sin against God? Joseph knew that if he engaged in these sexual things with that woman, it would be not just a sin against her, not just a sin against others, but a sin against God. And today, when you and I are guilty of lying or guilty of other kinds of sinful activity as defined in the Bible, we are sinning against God. And it breaks his heart, Ephesians 4.30 it causes him to be grieved in spirit because we are letting him down as his children. You and I know what it's like as a parent sometimes when a child makes a bad decision, when a child makes a somewhat foolish course of action. We, in fact, cannot live their life for them, but it hurts deep inside when they've taken a wrong path. We notice here our sin is principally against God, but lesson two... You'll notice something else from the text before us. Sin is a shameful thing. Did you notice the language David used? Wash me from this. This isn't happy. This is something that makes me feel dirty. It makes me feel unclean. It makes me feel contaminated. It makes me feel polluted. Sin always does that. 
And we live in an age and a time when Satan is so very skilled at making sin appear glamorous, making it appear noble, making it appear the pleasurable fun thing, making it appear the normal thing, when all the while it is a shameful escapade from opening to close. We lie down in our shame, and our confusion covereth us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth, even to this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. The famous words of Jeremiah 3.25. The shamefulness that you see in that text does remind us of that great contrast, doesn't it? In this instance, Uriah was more noble than David. He didn't go lie with his wife. He felt it more honorable to recognize that Joab and the troops at war were in the discomforts of life, and so too should he be. All the while, David, in conceal, wanted the man to sin, wanted him to engage in these other activities like drunkenness, and finally David killed him. We can only imagine the horror that would come from that kind of activity because after all, you can't bring a man back to life. David had to live with this the rest of his life that he had an instrumental part to play in putting Uriah to death. No wonder David pleaded for God's forgiveness. No wonder he wanted a clean spirit within him. He must have felt awful. But let's notice a third lesson. Where was the cleansing to be found? It wasn't to be found in the annals of the Chronicles of the King. It wasn't to be found in the nature of Nathan. Nathan couldn't give him forgiveness. It had to come from God. David first had tried to hide that sin, but now he knew that that was fruitless. The only thing to do was open up and come directly before God and do what God said to do to be forgiven. That's the only thing he could do. Thankfully, David did it. But might we notice these interesting points. Notice with me verses 1, 2, and 7. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Isn't it amazing that David pleaded with God to cleanse him, with God to wash him, with God to forgive him, and isn't it still that way today? Only God has the power to forgive sin, because sin is a transgression of His law. No wonder then... We have in the words of the Bible what is required in order for us to be forgiven of sin. And when you and I find ourselves in that slot, in that spot today, may we, like David, desire most that He cleanse us. And so we would quickly and hastily do anything that He tells us to do. Doesn't that remind us of Paul's famous reply in Acts 9, 6, Lord, what wilt Thou have me to do? Saul knew he was a persecutor of the church. He was one that didn't believe in the Christ at that point in his life. And he prayed, what will you have me to do and I'll do it. May our response today be similar to that one. In addition to these three lessons, let's look at a fourth one. As we look at these things that help us see the right response to sin, what about David's attitude? Arguably, this is one of the most significant matters as we read the 51st Psalm. Did you notice with me the transition? Back when we noted 
In the nature of 2 Samuel 11, David tried to hide it. He tried to conceal it. He tried to cover it up, but now that was the furthest thing from his mind. He simply in humility wanted to bring note of it to God and deal with it. Our attitude too makes a tremendous difference. One of the most powerful temptations of Satan, it seems, is that when we find ourselves in sin, we want to save face. I want to excuse my behavior somehow, rationalize it in some way. I want to save face. David didn't try to save face. God, I've sinned. I'm guilty of it. And now I want it to be cleansed. You and I do greatly err when we strive in arrogance and pride to conceal or cover the sin or make excuse for it because sin can't be whitewashed. It is what it is. The world may call it by any number of fancy names, but it still is that three-letter word sin, isn't it? David desired, as you notice with me, in verses 1, 6, and 17, in pleading with God in humble spirit, You and I in humility recognize it takes courage to walk down that aisle. When we recognize sin in our life, it takes courage to come here and announce, even in an indirect way, I have done wrong. I have been guilty. I have not done what God would wish me to do. And yet, that's exactly what God requires of us. Because, fifthly, we must acknowledge our sin. Notice again with me verse 3. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. The time for covering it up was now past. The time for covering it up was gone. David acknowledged it. One of the first things that God demands of us, too, is to acknowledge our sin. For if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1, 8. It is the case then, isn't it, that you and I must come face to face. I have been guilty. I have done this, that, or the other. We need to acknowledge it to God. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. There then is a scene in which we confess it before others so that they can encourage us, pray for us and with us, And help us on the journey so that we will not be guilty of that again. Sin thus becomes an open matter, doesn't it? I would invite you to notice yet a sixth lesson. In addition to this matter of acknowledging it, it's time to experience a restoration. Let's speak more clearly about what we mean by that using verses 10 and 12 of Psalm 51. David wrote, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And then verse 12, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Do we hear in the words of David the fact that currently, while in sin, David, according to verse 10, had an unclean heart. Also verse 10, a broken spirit. Verse 12, he currently was one that did not enjoy the joy of salvation. And then finally, he did not have the free spirit that he once had enjoyed. That's the kind of defilement that sin brings. It was time for a restoration. 
isn't it still a marvelous thing that God says, Behold, all things are passed away, those old things, and all things are become new. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. To those who obey the Master, their sins are cleansed, their sins are forgiven, their sins are remitted, and they are able to enjoy a covenant, joyful, united relationship with God. David currently was missing that. Oh, how desperately he wanted it back. Today, when you and I appreciate or come to realize that we are clouded in sin and we're living a habitual life in that way, we too should feel like David, that what we missed was so important to us, we with urgency and with haste will strive to come back to it. One of the comments you might notice there at the bottom was, it's time to leave sin behind. It's true, David had committed murder. David had committed adultery. David had committed drunkenness. David had committed deceit. David had been dishonest. We aren't trying to excuse any of that. But there comes a time when sin is done. One will have to live with with its consequences to be sure, but one has to go on. David couldn't bring the man back, and he couldn't cause Bathsheba to not be pregnant. That had happened. But it was time to get forgiveness and time to move on. Isn't it amazing that that seems to be the heart and core of repentance, doesn't it? When you and I repent of sins today, we know we may have to live forever with its consequences in the sense of this life. But once we're forgiven of it, at least the guilt is no longer covering us. It is with those thoughts in mind. We can draw near the close of our lesson with these two final thoughts. These two are summarized in this. It was not enough just to give thoughts of a restoration. David needed also to understand the need for, to grow spiritually. Did you note with me the language as it appears in verses 13 and 15? Then will I teach transgressors thy ways. All these sins of which David had been guilty, and now he says, God, once you've cleansed me, once I'm forgiven, I will speak of your way, speak of your cause, and I'll teach transgressors so that they hopefully can live right in your sight as well. David there spoke about the evangelism that would be a part of his life if he could be forgiven and walk rightly with God. Today, you can appreciate with me how needful it is Once God has forgiven us of sin, it's important to strive to fill those voids and holes in life with that which is good so that we will not be as likely to give in to that sin again. The Bible on many occasions teaches us of that given truth. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3.18. We're told to desire the sincere milk of the Word that you may grow thereby, 1 Peter 2, 2. We're reminded that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, verse 17. All of those things help us see that David had a mentality that was right by this point. He wanted God to forgive him, and now he was going to input into his life the truth of God's way and even use that to help him assist others as they would finally come to truth themselves. The final thought of the lesson today comes with a matter of worship as it's mentioned in verse number 19. While David was encumbered in sin, what does the text say about his worship? 
I would invite you to read verse 19 with me one last time. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. As David made reference to the matter of worship, not only for himself, but in fact for the nation of Israel at Jerusalem, he made note that then God would find things acceptable. Then God would find things appropriate and pleasing. But while in sin, you might notice that David's worship was not pleasing unto God. Doesn't that teach us a very interesting parallel lesson today? If I live a life of deliberate sin, one in which, again, I'm approaching matters of life opposed to the truth of God, then coming to worship is something that leaves a void because my worship isn't pleasing. God wants a heart that's right, a spirit that's truthful, a character of one who wishes to follow the truth of God in all ways and in all matters. For indeed, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. John 4.24 As we've looked today at the right personal approach to sin, it seems that these summary remarks are appropriate and then the lesson will be yours. David first made the great mistake of trying to hide his sin. And he had found out in easy fashion how terrible that was. But now, as we've learned also from Psalm 51, he did approach things correctly finally. And he did that in these eight ways that we have studied this morning. Central in them was to acknowledge his sin, understand that it's against God, and experience a restoration. Today, if sin is that which is a descriptive feature of your life, why not come to your master today? Deal with sin rightly. Don't try to hide it. Don't try to cover it up. Don't try to conceal it because God knows it. He's well aware of it, and He's aware of everything that's causing to happen in your life. If you're an alien sinner, one who has never named the sweet name of Jesus as your Savior, today could be the day you cast off the reign of Satan in your life, put Jesus on the throne of your heart, deal with your sin correctly, because Jesus commanded us to do this. You believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Romans 10, verses 12 to 14. Furthermore, you repent of the sins in your life. That means you have a change of mind with respect to them and have a firm intent to never commit them again, Luke 13, 3. Then you confess the name of Jesus as a Son of God, Acts 8, 37. And then be buried in baptism for the remission of sin, Acts 2, 38. Once you've done that, if you again have lapsed back into a life of sin, why not come back to your first love today, Revelation 2, 5? We would pray with you and for you. And as long as you believe and repent and confess those sins to God, He will forgive you of them and you too can be restored and experience the great joy that God would want you to know in life. If today we could be of assistance to you in either of these ways, we would urge you, plead with you to come while together we stand and while we sing the chosen hymn.